I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Endy. Since its launch in 2015, Endy has become the leading online sleep brand in Canada. Their mission is simple, to provide Canadians from coast to coast with the best possible sleep at the fairest possible price. To get 50 bucks off of their already very low prices, go to ND.ca, that's E-N-D-Y dot C-A, and use the promo code CanadaLand. This episode is also brought to you by Sonos. Their new product, the Sonos One, blends incredible sound quality with Amazon Alexa. And listeners of this podcast can get 10% off of their order. That is any order up to $2,500. This offer is available for a limited time only, cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. To take advantage of it, go to Sonos.com and use the promo code CANADA10. That's CANADA10. And guys, this episode of Canada Land will be guest hosted by Omar Mualam. I'll be back with Shortcuts on Thursday. There's a movie trope of police reporters as grizzled old men, slipping through the police tape, never taking no for an answer, and ambivalent about whether or not you like him. 
But if you've worked in a newsroom, you know they're just as likely to be women and more likely, in fact, to be young journalists, often at the start of their careers. In reality, crime reporting is treated like a junior beat, with all the worst hours and inconveniences editors burden on their cup reporters. It's a stepping stone to something more comfortable and respectable, like political reporting. And exposing yourself to so much trauma, after all, whether it's at the scene of a crime or in the presence of grief, can burn you out. But for Jana Pruden, there's no better beat than crime. The majority of her 19 years in reporting have been spent talking to the victims and perpetrators of crime. First at the Regina Leader Post, then at the Edmonton Journal where she was made the Crime Bureau Chief, a title that was meant to restore the integrity of crime reporters who often get a bad rap as ambulance chasers and vultures. She left the journal in protest against Post Media's heavy-handed layoffs in 2016 and since has joined the Globe and Mail, where as a feature writer, she continues to bring a sense of humanity to these stories. If you've read her work, like Fear on the Family Farm, a true crime story about a son taking revenge on his abusive father and the pain that was left in his wake, then you know what I'm talking about. In a sense, what Jana Pruden is doing is slow crime journalism, treating someone's life and death as more than just a one-day report. Some of her stories take years. She's been working on one triple homicide story since 2014, and it's come with remarkable access to a man convicted of killing his entire family. Which begs the questions, what are your responsibilities as a reporter interviewing the accused? How do you know if you're being used by calculated manipulators, and if you are, do you still report it? To get answers, I'll speak with Jana about why she believes in true crime stories is having the potential for something much greater than just morbid fascination. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Alex Jobin, Diana Hari, Katie Rosa, Rick Horacholin, Alan Brody, Jason Boyce, Mary Rolf, and Hugh Stimson. I'm Hugh. I'm a environmental data guy in Vancouver, British Columbia. And when I first heard Jesse was starting a podcast, I thought, hey, what a great chance to stick to the man for canceling search engine. And then after a while, my credit card expired. and I thought, well, they're doing fine. And then there was these episodes with Sarah Pauly and Robert Jago. And I thought, uh, you know, maybe it's time to uh, be up my credit card. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. 
They are not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is also brought to you by Endy, which brings a Canadian spin on the whole mattress in a box game. As you know, this new generation of mattresses saves you all kinds of time and money because you don't have to go to a big, ridiculous storeroom, lie on a mattress and act like you know what that means. Instead, they just send you a great mattress directly to your house. And if you don't like it, you send it back. The fact that it's made in Canada means that you get all that for a lot less. They manufacture it in Canada with Canadian materials, and they save a lot of money on shipping and customs and such when they get it to your door. They pass on those savings to you. So it is the even cheaper version of an already pretty cheap way to get a mattress, and it is also an excellent mattress. Why not go to their website and have a look at what they're providing? That is at endy.ca, E-N-D-Y.ca. And if you do buy a mattress, use the promo code CanadaLand, you'll get 50 bucks off. This episode is also brought to you by a new sponsor for us, The Great Courses Plus. There are all kinds of online lectures and online learning you can do. These guys have been at it for 26 years. They were offering courses on audio cassettes. They offered courses on CDs and DVDs. They are the leader in this, and they remain a leader in this because rather than having to sign up for a course that you may or may not finish, that you may or may not want to hear every lecture, they have an all-you-can-learn pass. The Great Courses Plus gives you unlimited access to like 9,000 lectures from the world's leading intellectuals and scholars. You can access it through their app. You can learn a new language. You can learn about history, science, or philosophy. One of their most popular courses you might check out is Outsmart Yourself, Brain-Based Strategies, to a better you, interesting, sometimes surprising insights from a neuroscientist to improve your well-being. I am interested in that. I am interested in their cooking classes, their language classes. If you like getting information via audio, which I kind of figure you might, check out The Great Courses Plus. And for listeners of this podcast, they are offering a free month of unlimited access to all of their lectures. That is a free month of access to thousands of incredible courses. The URL is a bit long, so listen, it is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash CanadaLand. Again, that is thegreatcoursesplus with like writing out P-L-U-S dot com slash CanadaLand. Janet Pruden, thanks so much for coming on to the show. Thanks so much for having me. When you came to the Edmonton Journal in 2008, the title that you had then was uh, Crime Bureau Chief, and this was a position that they had made for you type of work that you started there and that you carry through at the Globe and Mail, to me, it's sort of like slow crime journalism, right? Making sure your sources understand that this isn't just a one-day story. Probably the best example of this is your Edmonton Journal story, Fear on the Family Farm, which it took you years to get your sources to open up to you for this. With regards to that story, tell me about your approach to writing crime stories over a long period of time and really getting them to open up to you. This case in particular, the Crichton case, I had heard about, and I heard about it very fleetingly, that there was going to be a case 
they were going to use sort of the domestic violence defense, but with a son against a father. So this is a young man who had killed his father after years of horrific abuse. Not just against him, but against his whole family. Suffered against the entire family, including the mother who is a paraplegic. So that was sort of a novel thing. At first, when I heard about it, I thought, oh, that'd just make an interesting sort of crime brief, sort of a legal story about this uh, domestic violence defense being used in the case of a father and son for the first time. But as I started to research it, in fact, I remember so clearly, I found a brief on CBC, just a very short story, and underneath in the comments, so here we have a a young man shooting his father in the back, 70-year-old father. So you could imagine what the comments would usually be. And there was a couple comments like that, what is this world coming to, where someone shoots a, a senior citizen. And then there were a string of comments that basically said, if you don't know the circumstances of this case, don't weigh in because it's not what you think. And that really just struck me. So I started to look into it and I realized very quickly that this is, there's something truly remarkable about this story. You know, I found all these blogs where people would talk about Holly Crichton being their role model, you know, other horse racing women, other people who uh, live in rural communities, how much they looked up to her. At some point, I was able to access the documents um, that were filed for Matt's bail hearing. So a young man charged with first-degree murder, there was, I believe, over 200 letters from people, like his dentist filed a letter saying, you know, in support of him, people, the women who worked at Quiznos, his chiropractor, and people saying, you know, he should be released on bail, he could come stay with me if he needs somewhere to stay. And I mean, I don't know if your dentist would write a letter like that for you if you were charged with murder, but I'm pretty sure that mine would My dentist writes me letters to remind me I haven't been going. <laughs> exactly. So, um, you know, very quickly I knew this is a really remarkable family. There is something about them that is extremely special, and I want to tell this story. And... So I contacted Holly, and she didn't want anything to do with me at first. And um, we actually got to a point about a year in where I was about to go up. I'd finally worn her down, and then she said no. I had the plane booked, and she said no. I just want to wait till Matt is uh, completely done with uh, his parole. And so at that point, you know, I was very anxious to get this story. And I knew that I could have written it then with what I had from court documents. You know, I could talk to some people around the family, but I just knew it wouldn't be the story that it deserved. So I waited, and at some point I wore her down. (laughs) It was about two years that it took me. And um, once she decided, I came up to see them, and they opened up their lives to me completely unrestricted. Nothing was off the table And um, that became the piece, Fear on the Farm. That story was so compelling and such an achievement for a mid-sized city newspaper like the Edmonton Journal. I think both Longform and Slate selected it as one of their best true crime stories of the year. Now, for most of your 19 years as a reporter, you were doing the Daily Crime Beat, and you met a lot of people on the worst days of their lives. What was that like? It uh, was very intense. It is very intense still sometimes. Um, it can be very heartbreaking. It can be very um, <laughs> extremely interesting. And um, I think it's actually changed probably the whole way that I look at the world and, and live my life, to tell you the truth. How has it changed the way you look at the world? 
you know, when I was a kid, I was always really worried about bad things happening. In fact, my whole life until I started reporting. And when I started reporting a lot of crime and breaking news, my mother, in fact, said, you know, I don't think this is going to be a good beat for you. You already are so worried about these things. And I think facing really head on the reality of what are some of the worst things that can happen to a person, to a family, is really changed the way I see, you know, what these things do to a life, how you can survive them, what they really mean. I guess it's it's like staring into the abyss in a way. Yeah, I mean, especially when you're dealing with someone like Jason Klaus. And so I, I want to bring him up. This is someone that you've been interviewing and reporting on for uh, for almost five years since this triple homicide happened in Alberta. And he was recently convicted, him and a friend as well, for killing his parents and his sister. Now, the first time that you quoted him was as an apparent grieving victim. You know, he said that this is just the most horrifying thing ever. It's, it's just so awful. You've since interviewed him many times from prison And presumably, a lot of what he's trying to get you to print is to paint him as an innocent, maybe even as a victim. Tell me about this case and what it's like interviewing someone on trial who might try to manipulate you to manipulate the courts. Yeah, so the relationships that you form with victims, uh, sometimes with perpetrators, uh, with people associated with a case are really, really interesting. And I would have to say that Jason Klaus... um, because it has lasted so long and it has been a really interesting relationship. As you say, I I knocked on his door the day after there was a fire in which his parents and sister were believed to have died. And on that first day, I don't know, is this a victim who's just lost his entire family to an accident? Is this a cold-blooded killer who has murdered his entire family and um, is trying to manipulate me? And that's a question that, I guess, has gone on for the past few years. Um, Even though he was convicted, he was sentenced to prison in January, but you're still working on it. Yeah, I am still working on it. Uh, We just had the trial in November, December. Decision and sentencing have just happened. Now, in part, I have taken on another story, so that's taking some of my time at the moment. But this story just is not quite ready for a reason I can't quite put my finger on. And a lot of it has been sort of figuring out who this person is, what this crime really is. You know, I think uh, Jason is now convicted of these murders, and he emerged in court as uh, probably one of the most ruthless psychopaths (laughs) that uh, I've (laughs) encountered. At some point in your interviews with him, he talked to you about going and searching for his mother's body. Yes. What do you do with that information? <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was quite a night. That was in the period after the fire and the deaths, but before he'd been charged. He wasn't charged until that summer. And in that period, he would call me quite regularly. And uh, one night he called me. The, the scene had been released to him, and he said, you know, I got up and I went to the house and I started going through all of the ashes and I found something that I think is my mother's tooth and something that I think is my mother's, it looks like a shoulder bone because they had only located the remains of his father and his sister and not yet his mother. And so I'd actually been out for dinner. This call comes in, you know, (laughs) late in the evening and uh, 
I assumed by then that those calls were being monitored by the police probably and um, that someone would hear that. But I did encourage him in our conversation that, you know, if he found something that he believes is a body part of his mother's, that he should probably take that to the police, which in fact he did. Have your prison interviews ever led you to being subpoenaed or forced to testify? No, thankfully. There have been occasions, there was one occasion in particular in a totally other case where the RCMP was trying to get my um, my recordings and my notes, and the journal fought that for several years. Tell me about that. Um, it was a person who was a suspect in a murder who had never spoken to the police and who spoke to me. And you know, any information that was relevant had gone into the story, of course, because I recognized that he was potentially a suspect in this murder. But the police still wanted the entire interview. And uh, on principle, the journal was not prepared to hand it over. And so as far as I know, my notes and recording are still in a safe in a lawyer's office. Why would he speak to you and not the police? Why does anybody speak to any of us? I'm not sure. But uh, that's not unusual that people speak to me and not the police. But I don't, I don't know why. Well, another, another killer that you had a lot of access to and that you interviewed throughout his case was Travis Vader. Yes. And this was one of the most sensational murders in recent years in Canada. Um, an elderly couple mysteriously vanishes on a road trip. And all signs point to this man with a villainous last name and a destructive past. Throughout the long trial, he frequently talked to media, probably more than his lawyers wanted him to. Much more. Much more. (laughs) And he would often talk to the media to play the victim. And you were one of his go-tos. Tell me about that. How do you decide what to report from an interview with a suspect like him and what to leave out? Because presumably it's baseless. Right. I mean, I think I always try to really remain clear on what my role is. I'm not the judge. I'm not the jury. It's actually not up to me to decide if someone is innocent or guilty. And both of these people I talked to over long periods before we'd heard all the evidence in court, before we knew what the evidence would be. You know, there's another case that I've been reporting on um, in the past year a little bit, I wrote a big feature about it, where a man has spent almost 35 years in prison. So, you know, now after Vader, we've seen the evidence that came out, but, you know, it was not a foregone conclusion that he was guilty. And the same with Jason Klaus, it was not a foregone conclusion that he was guilty. If you look at the history of wrongful conviction, often people who are the likeliest suspects also make very good wrongfully convicted people. And there can be a lot of questions about, um, investigation, interrogation, evidence gathering. Uh, Vader would be a perfect example because there was major mistakes that were made very early on in that investigation by police, which we know were huge mistakes and set the course of the whole um, investigation. So um, I think on one side of it, I'm keeping that in mind. I don't know if this person is guilty or not. We haven't heard the evidence yet. It hasn't gone to trial. I do believe in the court system and that's their role in this. So I am gathering information. I'm being extremely careful. You know, I I was a court reporter in Regina for seven years. And I think sitting in court all day, every day was really instructive on how manipulative people can be. Um, The quote that I often used to think about was a Groucho Marx quote that his favorite Emotion was sincerity because it was the easiest one to fake. (laughs) And, you know, I would sit in court and see people who looked 
um, so legitimately sorry or contrite or proclaim their innocence. And they're going to turn their lives around. <laughs> yes. You just give them this one chance. Yeah, I mean, really amazing stories that you would not be able to tell were lies and only by sitting in there for many years and sometimes hearing the very same story told by the very same person day after day after day, spanning over years. Uh, Every you know. time they're going to turn their lives around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's something I always keep in mind and that would be not just with crime reporting at various times. Of course, I've reported on other things, you know, with politicians as well, with, you know, any kind of any kind of story you're doing, I guess you're always looking at, you know, is this truthful? Is this person manipulating me? Why does this person want this information out there? You know, what do they gain by this information? And that your focus really has to be on the integrity of the story, the integrity of your reporting. And um, particularly dealing with people like that who may or may not be psychopathic killers. Like you Travis know, Vader. Like Travis Vader and like Jason Klaus. I mean, Jason Klaus could have been an innocent victim of a horrific accident or he could be, you know, soulless psychopathic killer. Probably nothing in between. And how do you deal with that person? Jenna, I know you've read the book a couple of times, The Journalist and the Murderer. This yes. is Janet Malcolm's seminal book about journalistic ethics. And she had a theory about reporters like you <laughs> that, uh, that you're no different than the, the con man who preys on people's vanity and ignorance and gains their trust and then betrays them remorselessly when it comes time to run the story. Do you buy any of that, about, especially about the, the crime reporter? Do you ever have to square up what you're doing with your conscience? No, I mean, I, I don't buy that. And if I believed that this was soulless work, I wouldn't do it. You know, I believe it's really important work. And I think that I'm doing ethics check constantly, right, with every story. And sometimes it can be tricky with these kind of situations. So someone, you know, gives you information that may relate to evidence of a murder. What do you do with that? And so those are things that I do always think of. And I'm lucky that I've always worked with really wonderful editors that if I have any doubt about something, um, how I'm interacting with someone, what the story is going to look like. Uh, you know, part of the issue with the journalist and the murderer, and I think uh, anyone who's interested in this should read both of the books, which is originally um, Fatal Vision is the book that inspired it and then uh, the journalist and the murder sort of a response to it. You know, I've never promised Jason Klaus, oh, I'm going to write a story about how you're innocent. I don't make that promise to anybody ever. It's interesting, I am uh, have been interviewing someone lately. He actually showed me a text that another journalist sent him that said, oh, I think you're innocent. I don't think you committed this murder, and I just would never do that. I would say that... I take a neutral position. I would call it maybe supportive neutral, <laughs> where you know I'm obviously um, open to hearing what they have to say. Um, I want to encourage that relationship with us, but I can't think of a situation where I've openly betrayed someone. I, I wouldn't do that because I wouldn't make those promises in the first place to someone who is potentially a murderer. Well, something that, that comes through uh, in the results of your work that, and something I admire a lot about it is this sincerity and empathy that you have for victims and sometimes the accused as well. 
the tragedy and grief of homicide really comes through in your storytelling, as does the complexity of hatred and forgiveness. And there's a lot of ugliness in your stories, but there's a surprising amount of beauty and grace. Now, I wasn't surprised to learn that you attend support groups for homicide victims. And I, I have to imagine that's where you've gotten a lot of your perspective. And you go there not just to not to report on them at all, but to sit and learn from them. Can you tell me what these groups have taught you? Yeah, and uh, just to be clear, it's not a regular thing. I don't go monthly or anything like that. But um, every so often, I do attend a group to listen and then also to answer questions about you know, the media's role in reporting these things because there's often a lot of very intense anger towards media and media depictions. So hopefully I can be there to help clear up some of that, to explain some of the decisions we make, why we do the things that we do, speaking specifically for myself and then generally about uh, media. Um, I'm not even sure I could begin to explain all the things that I've learned sitting in those meetings, but one of the main things would be just how profound it is. Um, One single loss through homicide, how singular it is to lose someone that way. There's no other death like it for the stigma, for the um, complexity, for the legal system, for all of the things that come with it are so complex. And really how profoundly it changes lives for generations, truly for generations, and how complex it is for people to navigate through the justice system and through the media and through all of these things that come along with a homicide that don't necessarily come with other deaths, including other, you know, sudden or tragic deaths. You mentioned navigating through the media, and there was a woman, the mother of a victim, who had brought you clippings about her daughter's murder Tell me about that. Why did she bring you those clippings? What was it that she was trying to show you? Yeah, this was uh, speaking at a Victims of Homicide conference that's held every couple of years here. So I gave a speech and then answered some questions. And afterwards, I invited people to come up and talk to me one-on-one if they wanted to share their own experience. This woman brought me a folder. I had never covered this case. It was years and years ago, I believe in the 80s. And she had taken every clipping she'd gathered from the coverage of her daughter's murder, and she had counted how many times her daughter's name was mentioned and how many times the killer's name was mentioned. And she showed me this final number, and the killer's name was mentioned way more because there was a trial, it had his background, there was sentencing hearing, and she showed it to me as essentially numeric proof that the media cared more about the killer than by her daughter. And of course that is not true, but it really, it always stayed with me as how how profoundly wounding it can be to have your case covered and also how a misconception can be so devastating. And even just talking to her about it, you could see how much that hurt her to think that uh, the media and the broader public cared so much more about the man who killed her daughter than about her daughter who'd been the victim of a murder. You don't think that's true? I mean, you know, speaking not just as someone in the media, but as a reader, it does seem that it is um, typical for the readers of true crime to have more interest in the murderer. Isn't that just common sense? I don't think that having a different kind of interest is the same as caring more. So, yes, there are things that we care about with 
a killer and with an accused and there's reasons to look at why they did what they did. Um, you know, the roots of homicide are <laughs> very broad from looking at, you know, psychopaths to looking at things that are clearly tied to broader social issues like, say, domestic violence and domestic homicide. So there are certainly reasons to look at why a homicide occurred, but I don't think that's the same thing as saying that I care more about that person than about someone who was killed. At these conferences for homicide victims, you often talk to them about uh, why it might be useful for them to talk to the media. How do you make that case? Because it is so easy to be exploited in that situation when you're opening yourself up and opening up your wounds only to be used for a soundbite. Yeah. You know, I think that something that I, you know, I don't tell people that they have to talk to the media or even that I think they should talk to the media. My hope is that um, they can feel empowered to make that decision because when you when you have something like this happen in your family, of course, you're like sucked into this all these systems that have nothing to do with you. And I think being able to be a voice for the person who died, to share memories of the person who died, to share a photo that's nicer than their Facebook photo, those are all choices that a family should have and that it can help to be informed about how to navigate that. So if you don't want to talk now, you know, here are some ways that you could achieve that. If you want to talk, say, through a spokesperson, that can be a good idea. If you don't want to talk now, but maybe you want to talk later, maybe when the sentencing is done, you want to tell people who your loved one was. Um, All of those require, I guess, just a little bit of a roadmap to help make sense of it and also to understand, you know, what people want from you and what kind of questions they might ask. I think it benefits all of us, media, families, and everyone to understand how media works and um, to make these relationships, I guess, more positive than they sometimes have been. When I talk to people one-on-one, trying to convince them to talk to me, like, I really believe in it. I believe in that voice. You do, and your your invitation to communicate with you um, over the course of time, over years, when they're ready, is sincere. And and one story that you've been reporting on, on and off since 2004, is this missing child case of Tamara Keepness. Tell me about this and the relationship that you had with her mother as uh, your interviewee. <laughs> Yeah, so Tamara Keepness is a five-year-old child who disappeared in Regina. That is one of those cases that I covered, you know, from the early days and being at the scene. She's never been found and it's never been solved. And it's a case, like many others who were involved in it, whether police officers or even members of the public, has always bothered us. Um, so I went back and did a feature about it for the Walrus a couple of years ago. Um, and that would be a good example of uh, her family. Some people spoke to the media in limited amounts at first. Um, the relationship went very badly. That's a pretty, The relationship with the media? Yes. You know, it's a pretty troubled, vulnerable family. It was under very difficult circumstances, Uh there was a lot of suspicion on the family. There still is to this day. So certainly the kind of interview that Tamara's mother, Lorena, gave me a couple of years ago is not an interview that would have been possible to get a day after (laughs) she disappeared anyway, right? I mean, it needed time to pass and it needed um, 
perspective and I guess what we can talk about now is just simply different. I did work pretty hard to convince her to talk to me. They weren't easy conversations. And at some point you had to ask her because there was a lot of suspicion around her. Mm-hmm. You had to ask her if she had anything to do with her daughter's disappearance. How did that go? <laughs> I did ask her that question. It was my last planned question <laughs> because I knew that that would be a pretty bombshell question. Um, I asked it at the end of a third meeting with her. And um, I would say she definitely almost punched me out. (laughs) Um, And I don't blame her. I'd also like to say I don't blame her. And when I asked that question, I knew that that might happen because it's an incredibly, it's the harshest question you could ever ask someone. I felt in this situation I had to ask it because You know, that is the cloud that has hung over her and her family and this investigation this entire time. And it is so tragic with her. I mean, she's been beaten up over this before. You know, people on the streets calling her a baby killer. That's happened to her many, many times because of this cloud of suspicion. I personally have never been so sure as some people are. In fact, it's never really made much sense to me including as the years have passed. And so I did feel like I had to ask her. And I'm glad that I asked it because what I saw in her face, the amount of pure, I guess, hurt at being asked that and anger that I could ever think that about her told me so much about her and about what it has been like to live with that. And you know, I regret that I had to do it, and I, I told her that after when she was very mad at me. But I am still glad because that's there's no way that you could act that out. That was so pure, and um, I think that that was really important for me as I tried to make sense of this story. Being on the police beat, showing up on people's doorsteps, uh, calling them often when they're in the thick of grief— and they need someone to point their anger towards. I have to imagine you've gotten yourself in some pretty hairy situations. Um, There was one woman who threatened to stab you, Mm -hmm. but by the end of the interview, she wanted to hug you. Mm -hmm. She asked if she could hug you. Yeah. How do you disarm people in these situations? What is your approach to such a, a sensitive moment like that in someone's life? I mean, I think sometimes you need to know when to leave or at least to stand back. (laughs) Um, And then the flip side of that is that I I don't take it too personally. Um, I know that there's a lot of feeling and it's not necessarily about me. And so I don't get angry in return. I think it would be easy to get really angry yourself and then you'd escalate the situation. My feeling is, like, I totally understand. When you go back and talk to them about what it was like to lose someone, when you talk to them years later, they barely remember, like, the first six months, you know? So I understand how hurtful and horrible it is to see me on your doorstep. And I hope that even when people get mad at me, you know, they don't have to talk to me now. And I hope that maybe they'll think about it a year down the road or two years down the road or five years down the road. How did you find yourself in these situations? Because your your education is in fine arts and photography and art history. You're a graduate of Nova Scotia College of Art and Design University, but you made a pretty sudden pivot into journalism. What's your story? 
Yeah, so I had been working as a fashion photographer's assistant in Montreal, and I hated it immediately. And my mother was living in Egypt at the time, so I went, was staying with her in Egypt trying to find myself, and uh, basically I misheard a song lyric on um, a Hits of the 70s CD. I had bought at a market, because in the olden days, you know, you only had a certain number of CDs, and you got tired of all your music. So I overheard this song, or I misheard this song lyric that um, I thought was about a war correspondent, the song was uh, Sister Golden Hair by the band America. And the lyrics again were? Well, he says, I thought he was saying, I've been one war correspondent. I've been too, too hard to find. But he's actually saying, I've been a poor correspondent. As in he hasn't been communicating No, very he's been well. a bad correspondent. <laughs> yeah. Like, I honestly, I think it was about 12 years that I had based my entire career on a misheard song lyric. Well, and all for the better. (laughs) Um, But at the time, I thought, I'm going to be a war correspondent. And I can remember the exact moment I was on the bus going back from Alexandria to Cairo. It was like a professional epiphany, a career epiphany. I'd never read a newspaper in my life, right? Art student, use it for paper mache, maybe. That was it. So I got back to Winnipeg, and I called the Reuters head office, and I said, hey, I want to be a reporter, but I don't want to go back to school. What should I do? And whoever answered the phone, I didn't even ask for anyone in particular, right? So it was probably like the janitor or something says, um, we'll see if you can talk your way into a job at a small paper and work your way up. And so oh, they gave you sincere advice. Yes. They didn't just hang up. No, sincere advice. And I remember like that specific phrase. So I applied for a job. I saw a job uh, posting at the Interlake Spectator. So it was for a reporter to be based uh, by themselves in Lundar, Manitoba at this paper that covers a huge area. And I applied with an essay on cubism. And I'd heard somewhere that anything you wanted to say, you could say in 300 words. So I wrote 300 words about the hospital my mom was working at. And Donna Delorier, the managing editor of a series of small papers, just basically took a chance on me. So within like two weeks, I went from Cairo to Lundar, Manitoba, where my beat was um, Highway 6 from St. Laurent to the Dauphin River First Nation. I was there for two years. Then I went to the Medicine App News for three years, then the Regina Later Post for seven years, then the Edmonton Journal for seven years, and now the yeah, Globe, Globe for almost Mail. two years. Yeah. What an incredible story. <laughs> Is, was there anything in art school that you've carried forward? Uh, did it help you in any way? Yeah, it really did. And in fact, you know, looking back now... I can see that I was kind of journalism curious, even though I didn't know it at the time. And one of my photography teachers, you know, what we talked about and what he taught me about seeing the world is really foundational to how I approach reporting. Um, There's a particular piece of advice that he gave me once, um, you know, that you can't You can't just take someone's photo. They have to give it to you, meaning that a true portrait requires some kind of connection. It's not just simply you capturing their image. And I think that a lot of that is the same with with interviewing, that you have to find a way to make that connection where people will give you what they know and what they felt. Um, You can shove a microphone in someone's face and they'll say words to you. 
But to truly open up, especially the kind of work I'm doing now, requires a lot of connection, a lot of trust, and um, never averting your eyes. You know, that was advice he gave me in photography, and I've thought about that a lot in reporting. In the crime beat, there's a lot of gory stuff that mm-hmm. you um, have to expose yourself to really understand the story. Most people don't stay in this beat for a long time, partly because of that, because it burns them out. But also mostly because it's just it's treated as a junior beat, a junior beat on your way to becoming a political reporter, right, the top echelon of a newsroom. But you focused on crime for the majority of your 19 years. Why do you believe in this reporting? And presumably, why do you believe in the true crime genre as deeply as you do? Yeah, I think um, it's funny because in terms of news coverage and then also in terms of true crime as a genre, say, as, you know, books, um, there's a real range from really, like, quick and dirty, mommy, don't, the terrible true story of a murderous mother, all the way to, you know, the executioner's song or work by someone like David Gran or Skip Hollinsworth, pieces that I think are are so beautiful and so responsible and so profound. And I think what's always drawn me to it is that if you can tell these stories responsibly, I mean, they are the absolute extremes of human drama, the greatest, and by greatest, I mean largest, uh, most profound experiences that people can have in life. It truly is like Shakespearean, (laughs) is the stuff of Dickens, to lose your whole family, to kill your whole family, to, I mean, it's the realm of human experience if you're interested in people and in the world and, you know, this this realm of experiences that we all have. I'm not sure you could find a better place to do that. In old-fashioned newspaper, it was called the misery beat because it, I guess, takes in the whole realm of human misery, not just homicide. The stories that you're doing in your role now at the Globe and Mail, they are long-form narratives. Some of my favorite stories of the last couple of years had your byline on them, but they weren't necessarily crime stories. It was coverage of John DeRoot's cult here in Edmonton, the tragic suicide of publisher Ruth Kelly, and this mysterious scarf you came across (laughs) that had one of your clippings on it. So there are other people who are now moving into the crime reporting roles that you used to fill. But I have to wonder with layoffs happening with cutbacks happening like the one in 2016 every year now is it realistic to expect the kind of slow crime journalism that you were doing to still continue it seems like newsrooms are way too under resourced to be doing that it's true although i would say although some of my stories have developed slowly the day-to-day has never been slow. I'm extremely lucky now to work at the Globe and be given more time to work on features. Uh, at the time that I went and did my residency at the BAMP Center, so you know, 16 years into my career or 17 years into my career, I had never worked on a single story for more than a week um, in terms of like actually writing it and researching it. So um, I think that you know, in a more general sense, we're obviously going through a big transition right now in the media, and there are some very painful parts of it, like shrinking newsrooms. But I also think that it's very exciting in a lot of ways, too. And I think that, you know, every day I read incredible journalism, some from quote-unquote legacy media or mainstream media, some from new startups, some from, you know, individual people. 
it's so exciting to me that I feel like if we pay attention to producing work that is good quality, that is accurate, I mean, those are things we cannot sacrifice, absolutely, because then we have nothing. But if we continue to focus on that there is a future for it. And, um, you know, transition is hard and it's scary, but it is it is also exciting. And, you know, I didn't work in journalism in the 80s when apparently money just, like, flowed through the middle of newsrooms. And I think that gives me a somewhat different perspective on it. I, I remember one woman telling me once, you know, in the 80s, I could spend all day writing a 200-word cop brief and I said, well, you should never have spent all day writing a 200-word cop brief, right? I mean, that's crazy. And people who have this image of how wonderful papers were there, and yeah, they were super thick. I delivered them in the 80s. I delivered them when they were very big, and then I started writing for them <laughs> as they got smaller. But um, I go back and read a lot of historic papers, and I'll tell you that the quality of journalism that I read every day is, um, by and large, way higher than what was happening in this heyday where there were so many reporters. So yeah, it's hard. Yeah, there's stories we can't get to, but I think if you uh, believe in it and work hard, then there's so much room to do incredible work and have that work be shared in ways that it could never have been shared before. I mean, even when I started reporting, if someone really liked your story, they'd cut it out and mail it to their aunt, right? I mean, now you can read and be read by people around the world, and that's that's really quite stunning. I think we take it for granted, but that's a really amazing thing. Jana Pruden, thanks so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. That is your Canada Land. You can email me at omar at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. I'm at omar underscore A-O-K. Find Canada Land on Facebook to get our stories right in your newsfeed when we publish them. You can also go to our website at canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. This show is produced by Allie Graham. We recorded it in Edmonton with Scott Franchuk at CKUA, and syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, please support us on Patreon.